they all call it Sunday with Mac. Get on with it, Macca. I will. Good morning. We knew that story was coming. That was February when John Burks rang us. He's talking about Katie Malua's song. This is, uh, you know the song. I play it from time to time, but I mostly play the Hank Marvin version, which is just the instrumental. And the words go something like this. The bike story. There are nine million bicycles in Beijing. <laughs> That's a fact. It's not a fact. It's a thing we can't deny Yes, we can Like the fact that I will love you till I die That's the song, Nine Million Bucks. And uh, John rang in February uh, of this year. Seems like a lot years away. February, and, he's, and he told us exactly there what uh, about the piles of bicycles at the end. And, of course, now, last couple of months, Carnage in Sydney and especially in Melbourne. Bikes everywhere, bikes everywhere. John was here in Australia the other day. We didn't catch up to him, but he sent me an email. He said, um, hey, Mac, I rang you earlier this year about the pyramids of bicycles in Shenzhen, one of the four-tier cities, if you like. I'm in Aussie for a week with business and was interested to hear the discussion on ABC Local for the bicycles now appearing in Sydney and Melbourne. Saw plenty around Newtown in Sydney. You guys are making all the same mistakes they made in Shenzhen. There, back when I called you, there were seven companies. Now there are more than 30 companies. Did you hear what he said to her? There were one company making 10,000 bikes a day. Then there were seven companies. There are now more than 30. You can't even, you can even share an electric bicycle. It has brought about the same kind of crazy chaos that seems to work in China, but I predict will be disastrous in Sydney and Melbourne. Will be interesting to see. Well, it won't be interesting, but I know what you mean, John. Um, we'll have to catch up. See our correspondents are all over the, all over the world. There are now more than thirty companies making these bikes. See, massive piles of rental bikes found dumped, especially in Melbourne, in the drink and whatever. Uh, that was our correspondent John. Um, Simon says. Uh, Simon and Tom, is it Simon or Tom? Uh, good morning, Ian. Just caught the short talk on the use of QE. It's very Aussie. And uh, yesterday, after the the um, New Zealand team did the haka, apparently at the football, um, the last uh, Bledisloe Cup match, which Australia won, and, um, they uh, the audience the uh, uh, did a QE after the New Zealanders did their haka. The audience did a QE. Uh, Simon says, it's very Aussie. In the 50s, in parts of the UK, were ex-military wives who called to each other out of their house window for a cup of tea time or babysitting time allowed you-hoo. You-hoo. And about the use last night to uh, overbear the harker, I've heard the Aussie battle cry at rugby and cricket that I first heard in Brisbane rugby when I played uh, when they played England. Aussie, 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 oi, 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 is actually a Welsh Cornish battle cry calling on an ancient Celtic god Og. Lug, the god who gave his name to London. The Celtic Harker is led by one who calls Oggy, 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 and is answered by the host Oi, 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 and the caller calls Oggy, the host answers Oi, the caller calls Oggy, the host answers Oi, uh, the caller calls Oggy, Oggy, and is answered by the host Oi, Oi, Oi. I first heard this sung by a school team support who were West Country oriented in an English boarding school in the 50s in Brisbane in 72 by two from that school. By two from that school. There you go. Thank you, Simon Tom. Um, there you go. And uh, a lot of uh, 
a lot of mail and email. This is a letter from Queens Beach, Bowen, North Queensland, from Steve. Steve says, Maka, just a short note from a loyal listener to let you know that in Ingham, far north Queensland, there's a news agency in town called The Paper Shop, situated opposite the, the station hotel. Um, the Townsville Bulletin in newspaper, uh, newspaper is the most popular in the region. I've heard in the past you've asked people, excuse me, where's the nearest paper shop? And they've sort of looked at you with the question marks. Well, in Sugartown in Ingham, everybody knows where the paper shop is. <laughs> uh, there you go. All right. And it's a lovely butterfly. Steve's pasted on his green writing paper, which is really nice. You like her. A lovely letter. Look, uh, don't miss uh, Why I Live I Live this morning. Mary Schneider's coming in a little later after nine. And I've got, I'll take you over the rainbow. Um, and uh, Boom Time won the Caulfield Cup yesterday. Had a few dollars on it, which was nice. And um, there you go. 1300 700 222. Love to talk to you. G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. This is Pete Kerr from Wisconsin. How are you going? G'day, Pete. Yeah, good. What's happening? Hey. Uh, I normally give you a call around Anzac Day to, uh, you know, wish the best for, for the festivities, but um, I thought I'd better call you. Actually, I was going to call you three weeks ago because I was up in Canada, um, as I was this morning at 6 a.m. I think I'd be the only guy that's ever streamed uh, Australia all over across an international border. So uh, <laughs> I started off this morning in Canada, and I'm now halfway down into Michigan, and I'm just pulling into camp for the night. So what are you, what are you up to, Pete? Tell us your story. Uh, well, I'd stopped working um, back in June, and my daughter and I were finishing off the, the horse show season. We got one more show to go, uh, which is in two weeks. And, and in between, I thought, well, I'll take the blue dog for a walk. And it's a little bit boring about where, around where I live. So I thought, well, I'll go up to Canada and see if they've got any good walks up there. So um, one of the interesting spots that I saw was a place called Northwest Angle, if you draw a line or, or follow the surveyor's line across the 49th parallel from Washington State into um, Minnesota, it actually hits a lake and it bumps and goes up to a really isolated spot that you can't get to unless you go through Canada. It's called North, Northwest Angle. And I was actually there when um, the guys in the stands were backtracking the uh, Route 66 and another Aussie trucker was heading down to Key West. So I thought, well, I should give you a call, except there's no cell coverage. So here I am three weeks later. There you go. Well, that's, that's nice to hear from you, Pete. So you, how long have you lived in the U.S.? Uh, about 17 years now. So uh, the young one's graduating high school in a couple of months, and the transition home starts after that. Oh, I see. There you go. Um, you'll be sad to leave? I'll be I'll be happy to get back home. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Mm. And and why is that? I mean, you've stayed for seventeen years for. Oh, my, my young my daughter's seventeen. She was born in Australia. That's a long story, but uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends and family back home that I haven't you know, seen for a long time, and I want to re-engage with everyone back home. Yeah, well, good luck to you, Pete. Um, and thanks for your call. From you're in Michigan now, are you? Michigan, yep, just in a little state park called Wilderness State Park. I'll get the blue dog out and go for a bit of a walk before making some dinner and calling it a day. Lots of Americans. Still streaming. Lots of Americans on the road, like here in Australia, you know, as they call them here, grey nomads. Lots of lots of people do that in the States, I suppose they do, because you've got a big population there, haven't you? Uh, they do. It's, it's, it's a mainly winter-summer thing. Those that have survived the winters and retired, they'll get in their RV and head down to uh, Arizona courtside or down to Florida or something like that for the winters and then come back up for the summers. 
Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's a, it's a mass migration. <laughs> All right, Peter, great to talk to you, mate. Keep in touch. No worries, and streaming across international lines today. <laughs> Good on you. G'day, this is Macca. Hi, Macca. Mark here from Rutherglen. G'day, Mark. How what, are you going? Yeah, good. What are you up to, mate? Mate, I'm just uh, up the paddock at the moment checking my cow that I uh, assisted the little calf out of last night. He was not, not, she wasn't progressing, so she needed a little pull. And, mate, she's okay. The little calf sitting here wobbling around on his feet, having a drink right now. So, uh, magnificent. <laughs> Doesn't get any better, Macca. No, that's a lot. That's a lovely picture. I suppose you haven't got your um. Well, you must have your phone with you. Take a little snap, Marky. How many? How many do you want? One, you and you and the calf and mother. A little no. selfie. Selfie. I've got a. I've got a better one, Mac. I've got one from um, oh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were up here and had a look, and um, the wife came up with me, and I said, "Oh, we're checking them. There was about three calves on the ground, and one of them was down, and they get." Um, uh, they need a bit of four-in-one calcium in them. Mm. And anyway, this cow wouldn't get up. And anyway, Jane said to me, he said, better put your hand up there and see if there's a calf there. And yeah, sure enough, there's a calf. So we pulled that one. And she just said, uh, better shove your hand up see if there's not a second one there. We pulled that one. And there's about 15 cows in the background watching us. So, mate, that's a shut photo. I'll send it through to you. Oh, that'd be lovely, Mark. Mark, how long have you been on your place at Rutherglen? Um, well, my mum and dad were on the river. My mum and dad have been on the river for, I've been out there for 50, how old am I? Yeah, 50, 53 years. Mm. So, and we're just down the road about six or seven k's from them. So, and we've been here for 22 years. So, absolutely glorious. And you had a good season? Um, it's been magic year so far for us, um. Haven't lost too many little calves at the moment. Um, or haven't, I've lost one out of 37 or 8 calves. So, haven't, yeah, so it's been magic for us. Green grass everywhere. We were lucky we had, um, we've had about 50 millimetres this month so far. So. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? The, the difference around Australia, but that's always the, all, always the way, Mark. I'd yeah. love, love to get that photo, Mark, and, and nice to talk to you. Thanks for calling this morning. How, how do I send it to you? Uh, Kelly.Lee. Kelly dot Lee, that's yeah. Kelly as in Ned Lee dot L W E at ABC dot net dot AU. Okay, I'll write it down until I get through. Kelly dot Lee ABC. Yep. Thanks, Maka. Good on you, Mark. Keep in touch, Good. mate. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Bye. And as our cities around Australia are being infilled, this is from Webimble, from Paula, and she says we listen every Sunday. Enjoy the tales from far and wide. We are relative newcomers to this rural life, having escaped from Sydney in 2001 and settled down in a beautiful valley west of Scone. It's in New South Wales. We've not retired, just relocated and started different careers. We now have a cattle property and breed Wagyu cattle on our grass-fed pastures. My husband has wide brown land genes in his blood, as he spent a lot of his childhood near Gundawindi, but I'm a city girl, so I was unsure how the shift would be. However, nearly 17 years later, I do not miss the city and, in fact, get twitchy as soon as we hit Warunga off the M1. Here at our farm, it is quiet. We hardly see a car pass on the unsealed road below our house and we're often quite surprised when someone turns up at our back door. 
As a writer, I treasure the time and space I have to create without all the stresses of city life, and I have endless inspiration from the skies, the trees, the nearby ranges, and all the animals that inhabit our world. I think I have adjusted well. I know I can't just skip out for some milk as the nearest town is 45 k's away. I have no mobile phone coverage and poor internet speed, but we manage. However, one thing I never get used to is the snakes. (laughs) I've had a few encounters in the garden and one red-bellied black in the lounge room made me wary for some weeks, but last week... After a brief visit to the grandkids in Sydney, I was relishing being home, having missed the spring calves, the blue wrens and the magpies. I heard an odd rustling and wandered down the hall to see a tail flick and switch into one of the bedrooms. I screamed, of course, and lucky my husband was close by on the phone, not out droving. So I ended up writing a story about it called The Drover's Wife, paying homage to Lawson. And uh, here it is, says Paula, Paula Stevenson. It's called The Drover's Wife. It's been a dry winter. The feed in the paddocks is crackling dry and every day we wait for rain. Now, in early spring, roos and wallabies are moving closer to the house to nibble a few patches of green grass and we have seen quite a few snakes. Stories of snakes in the Australian bush are archetypal, representing the eternal struggle against nature. They've been made legendary in tales such as Henry Lawson's The Drover's Wife, a story penned in 1892. Lawson's description of... A few she-oaks, which are sighing above the narrow, almost waterless creek, could be an accurate portrayal of the creek at my farm in 2017. And snakes sometimes invade the house, as happened in Lawson's story. A woman and her young family are alone in a hut, miles from anywhere, when one of the kids spots a snake. It disappears under the house, and the woman spends the night in the kitchen with all her kids bedded down on the kitchen table while she and the dog watch and wait for the snake to work its way through the cracks in the floor. Last week, I just happened to see a tail flicking along the end of the hallway and into a bedroom. I yelled to my husband, who had not gone droving, and who at first was going to try and remove it, but when we realised we were not sure if it was a black or a brown, we thought better of it. I googled snake handlers (laughs) and finally was put onto Gavin, a snake handler from a town an hour away. He's a welder by trade, but agreed to come after work. He advised us to stack wet towels along all the three doors so as to make sure the snake was corralled. So we did, and sat quietly outside, watching. We had placed a saucer of milk near the bed to entice the snake out, as did the drover's wife. But this did not seem to work, though we did see his head once or twice as he slipped out from under the bed and looked around. In Lawson's story... The reptile, as though suddenly aware of danger, sticks his head in through the crack on the other side of the slab and hurries to get his tail round after him. As darkness fell, Gavin appeared at the back door in his high-vis shirt and with his gear. He proceeded to search all the corners of the room, finally locating the snake beside a bedside table. In Lawson's story, the dog and the woman work together to kill the snake. The head rises to dart about, but the dog has the enemy close to the neck. Thud! Thud! The snake's back is broken in several places. Thud, thud, its head is crushed. Gavin had a short battle using his long wand, but finally pinned its head, grabbed its body, did not kill it, but manhandled it into a bag and then into a box, which he taped up. Lucky you didn't come across that one, Gavin said. It's a King Brown. I'll take it to me mate in Newcastle. We farewelled Gavin and the snake and spent a restless night listening for further rustlings, hoping all the cracks under the doors were well sealed and that the snake did not have any siblings nearby. 
I felt great admiration for the drover's wife and her dog. Paula, Paula Stevenson, at Wabimble, via Skane, that's a ripper. And it's timely warning, isn't it? But everybody who lives anywhere knows about snakes. There was a green snake on, on my porch, and I live in the city. There was a green snake on my porch three or four years ago. Now, I wouldn't see it, but my neighbour did at the time, Eric. He saw it. So the snakes, a green snake won't hurt you, but, you know, King Browns, you want to be aware of them. And just for a little perspective, a Victor Daly poem, The Call of the City. There is a saying of renown, God made the country, man the town. Well, everybody to his trade, but man likes best the things he made. The town has little space to spare, the country has both space and air. The town's confined, the country's free. Yet, spite of all, the town for me. For when the hills are grey and night is falling and the winds sigh drearily, I hear the city calling, 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 with a voice like the great sea. If you'd like to write to Why I Live Where I Live, it's Post Office Box 994, Sydney 2001, or text us or uh, email us or whatever. And that's Why I Live Where I Live for this week. <whistles> Sally's in Port Vila. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, Mecca. What are you doing in Port Vila? Oh, that's a long story. You haven't got time for that one. Yes, I have, no. I have, I have, I have, I have, I have. <laughs> well, well, we're sitting, we're sitting on our on our yacht in the cockpit, um, on the hard in the boatyard, um, having breakfast on a Sunday morning and listening to Mecca. Um, and uh, our adventure, well, our trouble started two weeks ago when we were returning um, uh, home and we were about 40 nautical miles off Port Vila and something catastrophic happened. We lost the rudder on the yacht. Um, it was, yeah, we had to go into damage control, do a pan-pan. But look, we're safe. We're back here. We're on the hard. We're sitting up in the air surrounded by um, hibiscus flowers and trees and um uh, waiting for a new rudder for our yacht. It, it has to come over from France. Um, and, yeah, it, we we were just so happy that we managed to find Radio Australia and then suddenly there was a macker as well and it's like, oh, you could almost be home. <laughs> now, Sally, w- w- when you say we're on, we're on the hard, what does that mean? That's a nautical term, right? Is it? Oh, well, well, we're sitting up in the air, so the the boat's out of the water. They had to haul the boat out of the water, right? And um, so we're sitting up on a on a stand in a in a boatyard. Um, so so we're we're on land on our on, on the our hard. yacht and on the hard. Is it on the hard? Yeah, yeah. That that. That's, so how did you how did you break your rudder? Was it storms? Was it or something? Or you hit something? Or well, well, no. You know, we were just having the most wonderful sail, and there was just we were in open water. That was our saving grace. Um, we were in open water um, off a, um, yeah, out of Port Vila. And we just heard this almighty noise. And suddenly, you know, it was a noise and, and just felt something happen. And we just lost our steering. The, the rudder fell off. So, you know, you can only you can only guess what may have happened. Because it might have been a submerged still- container or something like that. Absolutely, or a, or a cable and a net. We, we've now that we've dried out, we've sort of seen marks on the boat that look like 
maybe a great big cable with a nest, something that was submerged, and it's just gone and ripped the rudder off. And, um, and look, how, I'm, I'm just, yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, as, it's, it's like life, isn't it? You're sailing along smooth and then it hits the fan um, for, uh, when, <laughs> when, when you're least expecting it. I mean, it really is, isn't it? I mean, yeah, here we are. Yes, I'll yeah, have another uh, daiquiri or whatever it is and bang. And then uh, the, <laughs> the bottom falls out. It's life, isn't it, Sal? Absolutely. Um, control on ice, thanks, Mecca. Um, but, um, yeah. or, uh, you know, look, it is, it is so true, and um, we're, we're just so so lucky. A, we're in, in open water. B, that um, we had some um, idea of what to do in terms of setting up a drogue and trying to do some sort of a controlled manoeuvre to get back. And um, two other... Australian, or one Australian and one French yacht that were at least 20 nautical miles away from us um, answered my pan-pan and um, they both turned around, stopped their own journeys, turned around, came back and just shadowed us and made sure that we were safe while we were um, trying to get back towards Port Vila and um, one of the boats... Went ahead and uh, arranged a uh, a rescue mission. So, so Sally, yeah, how, how long have you been? Have you been sailing the world? Have you? Is this what you do for a living, or what's the deal here? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? No, this is our retirement dream, um, Macca. We we're from Lennox Head and um, on the east coast yeah. here in Australia, yeah. and uh, we knew retirement was coming up and wanted to do something a little bit different. So we we saved hard and worked hard go. and bought a yacht and. Um, we went from um, Australia to New Caledonia with uh, uh, an organisation called the Go East Rally, who are just brilliant people who helped us along the way. So now you're um, on the now you're on the on the ocean waves and you're sitting up hard having brekkie in Port Vila. I wish I was with you, Sal. Absolutely, I... and and you know a good old a proper bacon and eggs and tomato and toast. Oh, and stop it! Stop it! All right, Sal. Got to fly. Nice to talk. Yeah, lovely too, Macca. I'm enjoying it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Oh, good day, Macca. It's Andrew calling from El Alamein in the Western Desert of Egypt. Good day, Andrew. What are you doing there, mate? Tell me. Well, today is the 75th uh, commemoration of the Battle of El Alamein. Wow. And it's an official... uh, official commemoration that takes place in the El Alamein Cemetery. Um, there are some 9,000 graves, I believe, in the El Alamein Cemetery. Many of them are Australian and New Zealand. And uh, the Australian Ninth Division, the Rats of Tobruk, took a major part in that battle. And there were three Victoria Crosses won by the Australians uh, in that series of battles, and I came along to uh, visit and pay my respects to those that were before us and uh, those that, that that gave their lives for our freedom. And Andrew, are there uh, many uh, people there, many Australians there, to do the same as you're doing? Did you just do this on your own bat, Andrew? Uh, I did it on my own bat. I, I couldn't find any tours coming out of Australia to, to visit the battlefields. Uh, so I joined with a uh, British group. But uh, there was one lone Australian that uh, 
came along uh, that that I met there that had come on his own bat uh, as well, and then uh, blown down. But um, Sir Peter Cosgrove was there with a team to um, uh, participate, as well as a number of uh, other Australian military. But uh, uh, yeah, it was a big event with uh, people from all countries. Yeah, I've got an I've got an email here from uh, a proud Kiwi. He says, "With the march of time, we've focused on the Great War. Sadly, the neglect of forgetting our surviving World War Two veterans. For example, there are now just ten surviving World War Two New Zealand veterans that fought at the Battle of El Alamein, including 98-year-old Major General Sandy Thomas, MC, who lives over here on the Gold Coast. Within the next few weeks, the Battle uh, of El Alamein will be." There will be a 65-year-old commemoration and will pass quietly into history along with those Australians that served there before heading home to the Pacific Theatre. As Churchill aptly described it, before El Alamein, we never had a victory. After El Alamein, we never had a loss. There you go. That's right. Mm. Yeah. All right, Andrew. So, um, uh, and uh, you're there now this morning or this evening, I suppose, now, is it? Yes, the uh, commemoration was this morning. It's It's now evening. And uh, tomorrow we head off to um, Mercer Matru to see some of the battlefields of uh, the Mercer Matru battles uh, in which both Australians and New Zealanders and, of course, uh, Polish and uh, British and Scottish and uh, uh, other nations were involved. And it's uh, a great part of history that must not be forgotten. Andrew, where are you from in Australia? I'm from south of Cooma in New South Wales. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, some time ago, I sent you some some shrapnel from the the battlefields of France. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just still got that in a little yeah a little case. Some yeah bullets and yeah little balls. Shrapnel balls. Yeah, shrapnel yeah. balls. Yeah. So, uh, and you used to be and, in you used to be in Japan. That's correct. That's yes, you. And I, yeah, that's me. Same person. <laughs> there you go. All right, Andrew. El Alamein, you're near Israel, aren't you? Uh, no, this is in Egypt. In Egypt, but yeah, you're far on from... the northern, on the northern, um, on the northern, uh, on the northern coast of Africa. I realise that uh, Beersheba is coming up next week. That's right, yeah. which is in Israel. Yeah. That's right. Sorry, yeah, I'm getting it mixed up. Sorry, Andrew. Great to talk to you, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, mate. Bye. Love your show, Maka. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Bye. It's Mary Schneider. Good morning, darling. How are you? <laughs> good morning. Lovely to see you. How are you, darling? I'm good. Mary Schneider yodeling the big bands. Jane Jane was in Mossman in Sydney. She said she phoned this morning. She said, "Could you ask Mary when she comes in where can she learn to yodel?" Oh my god! <laughs> and I didn't Every- know that. I, I didn't. Everybody, know. everybody asks that. I look. I really don't think you can learn. From anybody. Well, what have you got to do? What have you? You just got to listen to uh, listen to the early, you know, oddly, 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 and and <laughs> try and find out how you go, lay, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, you know, and practice. You know, if you can do that, <laughs> I I started when I was six. Yeah, just listening to Smokey Dawson and you know Tex Morton yeah. and those. They so all every, all <laughs> those early like if you were a country music person, you you yodeled in part of your songs, didn't you? Slim yeah, at the back at the end of the Buddy song. Buddy Williams and yeah. that's right. It came into uh, country music from uh, Switzerland and all over there. <clears throat> came to America and lots of in. Uh, 
I don't know, but you listen to lots of those early country songs, and they the song started with a bit of a yodel, and yeah. they sang the song, and then it sort of ended at the end. Ended with a bit of a yodel, didn't it? It got into country music. So what what, will I tell Jane? uh, Practice. (laughs) Come out to Mary's place. (laughs) Yeah, well, I suppose. Start off with a Tarzan call like, (laughs) They are, Jane. Can't do it. It's too early. (laughs) Well, there you go. Oh, dear. I love this show, you know, Ian. I always listen to this show, always. And that lady that came in and and this morning and said she could do some bird noises, I can do a a dove. Do you want to hear the dove? Yeah, I do. Because I went on tour as a little girl. I started singing with Reet when I was 12, and Mm. we used to tour around. Mm. And this guy was did bird noises, and his, that was his act. Yeah. <clears throat> and he taught me a lot of bird noises, but I can I can still do the dove, and it goes. And and so you'd come on stage as a twelve year old doing that, <laughs> doing your bird yes. noise. No, I was the echo. All oh, right, back. I'd see, I see. <laughs> oh dear, it takes me back. <laughs> <laughs>